subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. It's one of the biggest mysteries in the U.S. right now. This was someone who said, I am working in the Trump White House, but I'm secretly part of the resistance and I'm trying to foil him. As we're recording this, we're a couple of weeks away from the publication of a book by Anonymous. It's called A Warning. The book is an expansion of an op-ed piece from last year by the same author, which sent people in the White House and beyond on a frenzied search. So who is it? Sources say Trump is still obsessed with finding the person. The White House and reporters trying to decode phrases in the column, looking for patterns without success. We've got denials from the vice president's office, secretary of state, director of national intelligence, Ben Carson, Jim Mattis, Steve Mnuchin, Rick Perry, Nikki Haley, McMulvaney. The op-ed was 965 words long. Armchair sleuths of all types took it upon themselves to analyze every single one. The mystery of the op-ed writer's identity has been cracked by WikiLeaks, who tweeted, based upon our statistical analysis of the language used in the New York Times anonymous op-ed, the author is likely to be an older conservative male. Really? Really? And to many people, one word stood out. That's going to continue to be a lodestar. As our lodestar. It really was the lodestar. Vice President Mike Pence really likes saying that. Lodestar is an unusual word, and if you're like me, you may not remember what it means out of context. It's a person or thing that serves as an inspiration or guide. And Pence has used it enough over the years for it to become part of his linguistic DNA. Others in the administration have come under suspicion. All of them, including Pence, have denied writing the op-ed. At least for now, anonymous remains anonymous. But on November 19th, 272 pages of their handiwork will be available to the world. You can bet that the linguistic Sherlocks will be analyzing every word, every phrase, even every comma, to try and solve America's biggest linguistic whodunit. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. I'm Patrick Cox. And I'm Kavita Pillay. The way you and I and everyone you know speaks and writes is unique, like a fingerprint. And the people who read those fingerprints are upping their game. Including one guy who walked away from musical stardom and instead became one of America's leading forensic linguists. Rob Leonard grew up in New York. He came of age in the late 60s at the height of the counterculture, where Americans were almost at war with each other. Very reminiscent of now, where we had rightists and leftists and then a whole bunch of people in the middle, and there were fistfights all over. Especially on campus. Rob was a student at Columbia, and there were two things he loved, language and music. He studied languages, and he hung out with musicians. He and his friends started a group, but they didn't sing the revolutionary hippie stuff at the time. We really liked harmony, and we liked 50s doo-wop music. Rob's group was small-time, just a side project. 
They played tiny, odd venues, like the psych ward of St. Luke's Hospital, a block from campus. But a weird thing happened. The hippies and the revolutionaries, they loved this retro music. Some liked the feel-good sound. Others thought it was some kind of performance art. Either way, the group, Shanana, took off. Shanana's big break came when Jimi Hendrix arranged for them to play at Woodstock. And then we performed right before Jimmy. In gold lame suits. The rest is doo-wop history. Shanana played all over the world, had their own TV show, performed in the movie Grease with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, and they're still performing today, at least some version of the band is. But Rob Leonard didn't go along for the ride. That, of course, is why I'm telling you this story. We were very busy, we were very popular, and we had such a touring schedule every weekend. We were all in school. And Rob was a serious student. He wanted to study another language, but he wasn't quite ready to quit the band, which was getting booked for gigs every weekend, often out of town. He knew the only way he could take up another language was if the classes weren't on travel days, Mondays or Fridays. And out of the 55 languages taught at Columbia, guess which one was not taught Monday or Friday? Swahili. So Swahili it was, which changed his life. Rob moved to Kenya to expand his studies. He learned several dialects of Swahili, as well as a handful of other languages. He eventually became a professor of linguistics. And over time, he became drawn to the new discipline of forensic linguistics, the scientific study of language as it relates to the law, and often to verbal or written evidence. For years, Rob kept track of this emerging area of inquiry. But it wasn't until the Pennsylvania State Police came to me out of the blue one day and said to me, uh, we'd like you to take a look at these two letters. More on those letters and how Rob interpreted them in a couple of minutes. All of us practice some form of forensic linguistics, whether we think of it that way or not. Is this note really from the tooth fairy? Did a child forge this report card? Is this will and testament authentic? But the science of forensic linguistics became prominent in the mid-90s because of one case. How did you, David, come to suspect that your brother was the Unabomber? You know, it actually began with my wife, Linda. She did at that point say, look, the Unabomber has sent this manifesto to the Washington Post. Would you read it and tell me what you think? The Unabomber had mailed 16 bombs over the course of 17 years. He killed three people and maimed many others. He took great care to leave no fingerprints or DNA, but his 35,000-word manifesto became the strongest evidence against him. He referred to um, women as broads. Right. <laughs> he referred to black people as Negroes. So it, it obviously you know, put him in a sort of you know, coming of age somewhere in the, before the civil rights movement. There was a particular phrase where he had called modern philosophers cool-headed logicians, mm -hmm. and I had recalled a similar phrase in a letter he had once sent me. A judge granted an arrest warrant based primarily on linguistic evidence. This was a first. Late this afternoon, Ted Kaczynski was taken from his backwoods cabin, leaving folks in the nearby town of Lincoln stunned. 
Kaczynski is a Harvard grad with a PhD in math, but his calculated attempt to hide that fact backfired. And it says there, people with advanced degrees aren't as smart as they think they are. Huh. So he doesn't have an advanced degree? Or he does, and he's lying. It made me think again about that word from the anonymous New York Times op-ed. That's going to continue to be a lodestar. If you want to stay in the shadows and you're not Mike Pence, but you know he likes saying lodestar, wouldn't you be tempted to throw in such a shiny word and watch the world pounce? Subtitle is a proud member of Hub & Spoke. It's a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts including Open Source, the world's first and still longest-running podcast. It's a weekly conversation about arts, ideas, and politics, a show that doesn't shy away from a term like public intellectual. In fact, public intellectuals are often the guests on Open Source. Check out the recent episode about monopoly and democracy, which poses the question, would you rather have democracy or 24-hour home delivery? Check out all of the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. After the Unabomber case, investigators turned to linguists more often to help solve crimes. That was what the Pennsylvania State Police were doing in 2006 when they asked Rob Leonard to look at two letters. The first letter appeared to be from a stalker. A man named Brian Hummert told police he found the letter on his windshield. And it said, this is the proof uh, your wife is terrible, all sorts of nasty sexual things. And I had an affair one nighter with your wife back before, and she outed me to my fiancé, and I'm back in town now, and now's the time for payback. Not long after, Hummert's wife Charlene was found strangled to death in her car. Another letter was sent to the press and to the police from a self-professed serial killer who said, you're looking in the wrong place. I killed her. This is the fifth woman I've killed. She was having an affair with me. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. So here were the cops asking Rob to look at these two letters. On the surface, they looked wildly different. Different styles. One was typed. One was sort of scrolled. One had mistakes, which we ascertained were probably disinformation mistakes because they weren't of a piece with the rest of the style of writing. And there was something else. The underlying narrative frameworks of both letters were complicated, but structurally smooth, effortless. There were flashbacks, there were flash-forwards. The author stepped aside for a moment to comment on what was going on, and he did it so well that you weren't even aware of it. I mean, that's good writing. There were other clues. The phrase, she wanted to break it off, but I broke her neck. Versions of that little-used rhetorical device, ironic repetition, They appear in both letters. The final clue was the use of contractions. The writer never contracted positive verbs. He never said, I'm. He said, I am. Though he often contracted negative verbs. I'm not. And that was the same pattern we found in the stalker letter, the serial killer letter. And they found it in the writing of Charlene Hummert's husband. In a case like this, Rob Leonard is careful never to point the finger at someone and say, they wrote this thing. But his expert testimony linking Brian Hummert's writing style to the two letters helped convict Hummert. Hiding behind words, concealing our identity, it's more difficult than most of us think. Joe Klein learned that lesson the hard way. My name is Joe Klein and I wrote Primary Colors. I did it by myself with no help, no secret sources. 
It's July 1996, and the Unabomber has been arrested based on his manifesto just two months before. Klein, on the other hand, was a Newsweek reporter who had published a best-selling fictional account of Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign. And he'd done it anonymously. And I want to tell you, it was great. It was a lot of fun. In fact, it was the most fun I ever had with a keyboard. Joe Klein was unmasked by a literature professor named Donald Foster. Up until that point, Foster had gained notice in his field for working on mysteries around 17th century sonnets, trying to figure out whether Shakespeare did or did not write them. But when Primary Colors came out, he applied a basic forensic linguistic technique called word frequency to show that Klein was the most likely author. Soon after, Foster was pulled into an infamous case that centered on a ransom note. It's been more than a week since the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey, a six-year-old beauty queen shocked the town of Boulder. The detectives enlisted the help of this man, Professor Donald Foster of Vassar College. You look at something and you figure out who wrote it, in essence. Yes, that's what I do best. Foster is not a forensic linguist, but he went on to name a suspect in the Jean Benet case who'd already been cleared. After September 11th, he wrongly accused a bioweapons expert for sending anthrax-laced letters around the U.S. And his claim about a Shakespeare poem, other Shakespeare experts disagreed. If there's a lesson in Professor Foster's rise and fall, it seems that the power of forensic linguistics must be balanced by caution and humility. A literature professor at the heart of a modern morality tale. Imagine that. People have seat-of-the-pants knowledge. Uh, lawyers and judges are fabulous self-taught linguists. This is Rob Leonard again. Rob, by the way, is the founder of the first forensic linguistics graduate program in the United States at Hofstra University on Long Island, New York. You don't learn scientific linguistics just by being immersed in language any more than you could consciously explain to somebody as a native speaker of English, when you do and do not use the word do. I do like ice cream, and he did do all his homework, and do I? We just don't have conscious knowledge of this stuff. We have a different toolkit than everybody else. Rob recalls a case last year when he had a team of assistants working on some written evidence where one piece of punctuation was key. And they came up with 23 different categories of comma use that they found. That's so funny. I mean, I, you think of all of the Twitter debates and people getting really hot under their collar about things like the Oxford comma and whether it's your, and yet here you've now come up with an example of comma use that is completely neutral in <laughs> its judgment of them, but just sees patterns and as a result is able to help justice be served. Yes, yes. Further the cause of justice. I, I often sort of blush, at least internally, when I say we're trying to analyze language to further the cause of justice, but it's true. But before anyone gets too carried away, it's worth noting that linguists don't yet know much about how language works or how to accurately analyze it. Forensic linguistics is still in its infancy. And that toolkit that Rob mentioned, not all linguists agree on what should be in it. There's an especially wide variety of opinion on how much linguists should draw on the big data of real-life conversations and writing. The databanks are larger than ever, and the tools to analyze them more sophisticated. One camp of linguists relies mainly on these repositories. 
The other camp, put simply, are the human analysts, people who rely on their own ability to perceive patterns in the language. Rob sometimes finds himself placed in this second camp. But he actually thinks progress lies in marrying the two, drawing on a body of huge data and then contextualizing it down to a specific set of circumstances, all the facts surrounding the crime. And that's something that may require a team of humans. Criminal law is only a part of the law, of course. Forensic linguistics can be used in all parts of it. And cracking cases for the prosecution is only a small part of criminal law. Helping disprove a case is just as important as helping prove one. With a distinguished professor of constitutional law here at Hofstra, a man named Eric Friedman, we founded the Hofstra Forensic Linguistics Capital Case Innocence Project, where we reanalyze language data, language evidence that may have falsely put people on death row or in jail for extended periods. And my students get to, not just get to, they are required to work on these live cases, either of exoneration or at the moment, like some of these death penalty cases we will be working on. And we're following one of those cases, and we're hoping to bring you an episode on it later in the season. Forensic linguistics is also entering our lives, whether we like it or not, or are even aware of it. Like right now, there's a piece of legislation called the Response Act, where schools across the country would be required to use software to look at the emails and social media and class assignments of kids to see if there are trigger words that might indicate that someone is planning a mass shooting. Are you concerned that there are privacy issues there for kids? Or is your workplace using this kind of software to monitor your email? What about on Facebook? Are you seeing conversations monitored for hate speech that are turning up false positives? We want to hear from you. Tell us about it. Our email address is subtitlepod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Lingopod. And if you want to hear more about forensic linguistics, there's a podcast about it. It's called On Claire. That's E-N, new word, Claire, C-L-A-I-R, French, nice. It's the work of Claire Hardacre, who's a linguist at Lancaster University in the UK. Each episode looks at a case with a strong forensic linguistics dimension. It's a great listen. You can find Subtitle in all the usual social media spots and at subtitlepod.com. Today's episode was written and produced by us, Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay. Sound designed by Tina Toby. Thanks to Allison Reed, Tracy Strain, Carol Zoll, Nina Porzuki, Alina Simone, Wade Rausch, and everyone at Hub and Spoke, Barbara Bullock, Jacqueline Toribio, Tammy Gales, April Calix Cattell, Kirk Chow, Jackie Mao, Nola Cox, and Sauli Pillay. And a big thanks to you, listener. Help us spread the word. Tell your family and friends about Subtitle and give us a review wherever you listen. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks about words we love and love to hate. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.